This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Emond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you're an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, or maybe just someone looking to learn about immigration, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests to share their wisdom, and we're all going to have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And now, Chantal is going to do some interpretive dance. Woo! Check me out. Check out these dance moves. Look at this one. Can you see me? Can you see me now? What about now? We have a great episode for you today. We are fortunate to be joined by Lisa Middlemiss from the law firm Gomberg Dolphin in Montreal to discuss the e-citizenship process, the pitfalls, and helpful hints. And we'll also have a new installment of our Things I Wish I Knew segment for you today. Thanks for joining us. Need a concise guide on all practical and procedural aspects of Canadian immigration law? How about a contemporary resource that examines the fundamental avenues, requirements, and remedies for immigration? Have you heard about Iman's Immigration Law Series? Well, duh, I think so, because we're the general editors. Yeah, it's true. Catherine Swicky and Chantelle Delage are the general editors, and Iman's Practical and Contemporary Series offers you a clear, concise, balance guide on the most challenging areas of immigration practice. Literally the only time in our lives that anyone has called us balanced. <laughs> Learn more about Iman's Immigration Law Series at iman.ca forward slash ILS. We are fortunate to be joined by Lisa Middlemiss from the law firm Gomberg Delphin in Montreal. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us today. We greatly appreciate it. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks so much, uh, Catherine and Chantel, for inviting me. I'm an immigration lawyer practicing here in Montreal, immigration and citizenship law at Gomberg Delphin. Uh, and um, yeah, I deal with the diversity of files um, and uh, happy to be very, very honored to be a guest. I'm also um, uh, vice chair of our Canadian Bar Association immigration section. Uh, but today I'm, I'm here speaking in my personal capacity as a, as a private practitioner um, without my CBA hat. Thanks, Lisa. So I, I know that you, uh, you do a lot of citizenship type work, and we would love to talk to you a little bit about that because citizenship has changed so much. Like the whole process has changed because of COVID. And I'm wondering if you could give us a sort of a high level view of like, what do you think is good? What has not worked well? What are your thoughts about it? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it is remarkable. I, I don't know what the two of you uh, believe, but I think it is remarkable how quickly Immigration Canada has sort of pivoted to um, uh, a virtual setting in the, in, in the citizenship context in the sense that uh, they are now able to administer, they administer the citizenship tests online, um, as well as the oath of citizenship. Uh, and, and all of that is because of COVID and wanting to avoid contact between between folks. Um, so they have quickly, very quickly adapted to that in the citizenship context. Um, I mean, there's still obviously room for, for tweaks and improvements. I, I mean, a client just told me the other day that he was on uh, his citizenship oath ceremony for about two hours. It was very long and he had trouble factoring that into his schedule. 
um, and that the government, that IRCC also had some breakout rooms, but there wasn't really much occasion in the breakout rooms to sort of talk about who was becoming a new citizen. And uh, so I thought that was a bit unfortunate because, you know, when you would attend in person with clients, you could kind of get a sense a little bit of who was around you, who was becoming, uh, you know, a Canadian citizen um, being sworn in a citizen. So, uh, you know, it's definitely a work in process. Uh, kudos to them for the for taking uh, some of these processes online. Um, one thing, the one one uh, difficult part is how slow the process has been going, though. I don't know mm-hmm. how you're finding that. But uh, in, in my files and uh, our files, uh, it's, and speaking with colleagues across Canada, I think, you know, it's well over 12 months in most cases, the uh, grant of citizenship. Uh, so, and proof of citizenship is long as well, actually. So, uh, despite the online mechanisms, processing times are longer than pre-pandemic. Right. So, even though things are being done online, which you would think would save time, the process has actually become longer. I, I wonder if it's worth it. I wonder if it, for some people, they'd rather just wait and take their oath or their exam in person if it's not going to make a huge difference to the time. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. I think what clients ultimately want is a faster process. And, you know, some clients were hoping to be able to vote in the last election and, you know, their they their files were not uh, there yet. Uh, they weren't sworn in. So uh, yeah, they'll have their chance uh, next time. But it's it's too bad because they were, you know, chomping at the bit to exercise their, their right as, uh, uh, you know, new citizens. And there's something to be said about having that citizenship oath in person it's quite a feeling when you know to watch because I went with a colleague of mine to see her get her citizenship and it was just a momentous occasion and you can't get that same sort of feeling online so my heart does go out to people right now because I know I would want my citizenship but I would be a little disappointed that it has to happen online because of COVID absolutely so that's that is challenging but a lot more, as you said, of, of citizenship processes has moved online and there's a new citizenship portal that was just put into play recently. And how's that going? Yeah, so it's it's been going. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, again, I guess IRCC is trying to go quickly to modernize their, their you know, the process, maybe find some time saving mechanisms. But unfortunately, uh, the portal, the new citizenship portal, uh, does not allow representatives to submit on behalf of our clients, which is very unfortunate. Um, I understand that they have developed this tool, uh, this new portal through, uh, I believe they call it uh, their journey labs. So they've been, there's been a, a proliferation of portals, as I'm sure you know, uh, you're, you're familiar with um, over the last months during COVID-19. And from what I understand, they've been developing these journey labs, if you will, to modernize and digitize with the help of certain service providers. Um, but I understand the actually, I, I believe the e-citizenship process was developed uh, in-house, though, without an external um, provider uh, helping IRCC to develop it. Um, but in the process of developing the citizenship portal, I guess they tried to come up with a minimum viable product that they could go live with as soon as possible to sort of test it. 
Um, and the minimum viable product uh, is, uh, doesn't really enable our role as council, uh, to put it mildly. So, you know, for example, um, like you can, to, to get a familiarity with the process, I just, you know, created an account to kind of see what it looked like without submitting anything. Um, because right now we're, we're sort of in a dilemma, almost an ethical dilemma, because there is this new portal, it might be processed faster, it, there's good chances it, it may be because it's all going to be digital. Um, but it specifically says that if you have a representative, the client cannot share their password with their representative with their lawyer, imagine, and um, the only mention of representative the client has is in the online portal. This one question says, are you, uh, do you have a representative? If they check yes, they can upload a 5476. And yet the lawyer counsel is hamstring, can't actually submit, can only really advise the client on the sidelines. So this is concerning in, in a few, in a few respects, but in a few respects even. So you'd almost have to sit together and do it if you wanted to have any input into the process. You'd have to be sitting side by side, sort of like doing that process together, I imagine, right? Yes, exactly. So, um, which, you know, going through every single uh, question, obviously some clients are more savvy than others with screen share and whatnot. It's very time consuming. Uh, and in the end, um, the client, you know, if they miss one question, uh, and they get it wrong, you know, it really encourages self-representation, but the reality is, although they're trying to simplify the actual mechanism of applying online, the legal issues remain just as complex. So it, it encourages people to go out there on a limb, apply on their own or with limited representation, let's say. And then there might be consequences for some questions, you know, because the questions really remain the same and some of them are even more convoluted. For example, I think in the part about prior immigrate, uh, it asks about um, uh, prior immigration or citizenship status in other countries. And there's even a spot where you can indicate periods you were a visitor in other countries. It's not clear yet whether IRCC wants clients to include periods where they were only a visitor, you know, for, for a few days in countries, um, you know, and so there's all kinds of questions that arise in terms of, um, you know, the council would be of an added value uh, and yet council sort of being shifted to the sidelines. They say they will work us in, uh, but they can't give us a date in 2022. It's very unfortunate because the minimal viable product is going ahead. We said, look, like I, I said, I don't think it is worthwhile to go ahead with um, a deficient well, product. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In our opinion, it's deficient and you should wait to launch this product. But we, we beg to differ. So, um, then it, and they launched um, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, mur, mur. too bad. Yes. And, and, and it's interesting because I think that's where the government should have had a lot of pause for thought to say, if we want this process to go as quickly as possible, shouldn't it allow lawyers and consultants, paralegals, you know, all, all the people, all the qualified representatives to make sure that all of the appropriate information is in there so the person can easily make a decision right off the bat. Mm -hmm. 
because if the application's complete and if it's got everything that is needed for that officer to say yes or no, it would reduce inquiries and administrative burden. But I'm finding that's not the case. Yeah, no, I, exactly. And, and the concern is not only completeness, because in a way, the system checks for completeness. It says, like, ready for submission. But, um, but the risk being that the application may be submitted as, quote, unquote, complete in some cases, however, refused or, or, or certain um, issues arise in the application because of potential misrepresentation, because the client doesn't understand the question or other such uh, pitfalls. Well, yeah, because, I mean, the most it can do is tell you if you've missed a question or you haven't checked a box, but it's not going to tell you if your answer is actually correct and, and the information is complete. It's just that you filled up the box, which really is not that much help. And it's hard because there's character limitations in the boxes. And I love the way IRCC makes these large boxes. It's like a tease. It's like you have this all this space to write anything you want, but nope. Nope, you can only get a sentence and a half in there. So <laughs> now you find all of a sudden you have to use abbreviations and all these kinds of things for that. So yeah, I but, find that can be challenging. Well, well, I mean, like, why would anybody do it then? Um, are they promising faster processing or? Well, they're not promising faster processing. Um, I, I do wonder about that. I mean, they say, you know, they provide by first come, first serve principle, but when is first come first serve if you file a paper application you know what i mean like when you send that package in to sydney um and it sits in an envelope for a few months perhaps because they don't have many staff members on site who are opening and digitizing uh, it seems when does that actually when does the processing actually start well probably when r10 completeness check is done um but you know there's i i think that there probably will be a leg so it puts us in a bit of predicament because, you know, like you're advising the client and, you know, do you present the option to the client? Well, you could apply online. However, um, if you apply online, I can only assist from the sidelines and uh, you can't share your password with me. So, you know, I, I will be certain, you know, I won't be able to, to log in on your behalf if, you know, um, and, um, yeah, so I, I guess that's where I, I feel a bit conflicted because I, I do think the online process will ultimately be faster. I don't know for sure, but I would, you know, wager to bet on that. Um, and yet, you know, there's no real proper mechanism for counsel to to uh, take care of that for clients at this moment. So if the client wants help getting their application complete, um, properly submitted, you know, all the, the, the documentation and, and information there um, and to understand the, the, the application, I feel that, you know, puts you in a tough position. Or I guess the other option is do the screen share. I haven't tried that yet with the client. I do think it will be time consuming. And then, um, but I'm considering it. I mean, to take advantage of this new online process, if the client will mandate me and, um, we'll go ahead and fill it out together, I guess. And uh, I'll try and re review the documents on screen with a, with a client. But to me, it does seem extremely time consuming if the client's not technology savvy. Mm -hmm. It is time consuming. We've done it uh, with a screen share. And, you know, it's very time consuming. And of course, you have to prep the client to say, oh, there's, you know, a four megabyte uh, upload limit so make sure you save this all in a folder on your desktop and it can't be any bigger than this 
Well, now they ask, how do I zip that folder? Or how do I shrink it? How do I reduce the size of that PDF <laughs> document? Right. Oh, well, you don't have Adobe Pro. So now we have to, you know, figure out how to combine those files and, and do that. Right. Um, and then, you know, taking screenshots along yes. the way. Well, how do I take screenshots? Well, we'll, we'll yes. do this. And then do I, I need something in the retainer if I want to record that Zoom? Yes. Right, because maybe it's easier just to record the Zoom and keep that that audio video file on record. That's a good idea. So mm. to come up with them mm. the odd time. Sure. She has a very rarely has a good idea. <laughs> so I feel like I just need to call it out and acknowledge it right now. Wow, I'm, I'm, cut, I'm cutting you off the wine, Chantel. <laughs> <laughs> well, these mistakes, you know. <laughs> yeah, but you know, but. But now that leads to other sort of issues. If I'm going to video record my client, I have to get their consent. And then now I've got data storage. So making sure that it's in a secure spot because citizenship's asking for all their details, right? Mm -hmm. So that it can't be hacked. So it's like you solve one problem and now you've opened a can of worms for the next. And then you solve that problem and, and it keeps going. Yes. Now, if you were to assist someone from the sidelines, what kinds of documents would you include in that application? Would you have a submission letter, uh, the Im, you know immigration representative forms being mm -hmm. uploaded? Yeah. What do you recommend to consultants and lawyers to include in that kind of application? Right. Well, I think versus a hard copy. Yeah, we definitely would need the use of a representative form uploaded there. I think it gives you a particular feel for that. They have not fully incorporated the citizenship calculation online, so you actually have to still upload the um, the separate <laughs> calculator through the other online tool. So you got to do that on the side, um, as well as supporting documents. The citizenship photo it does provide guidelines for how to upload that, um, and probably yes, a, a representative letter. Um, you know, mentioning what we would typically mention, except that the client was submitting on their um, on their own, because that's what the rules are right now, that the client must go ahead and submit on their own. So um, I imagine um, that's what I would add. Um, like I say, I, I'm, I'm still hopeful that, you know, with continued advocacy, maybe there will be an upgrade of the minimum viable product to include uh, counsel, um, because it's something ultimately that, um, you know, involves or hampers our ability to practice. And, you know, it's essentially an issue with the, for the law societies. Um, if we could move away from the um, portal for a moment, mm -hmm. just talk about citizenship applications more broadly. Um, when you first meet a client, uh, say you're consulting with them about a citizenship matter, and you're maybe meeting them for the first time, what sort of flags would you look out for? Or what kind of pitfalls might you try to pay attention for? You mean like uh, just just in general, like if I was providing, if I was going to represent the client? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess clients who um, have not kept good records are difficult clients for, it's difficult for them to apply for citizenship because they might not know when they traveled or where. And so a, a good first step is like an access to information request to get their entries to Canada, at least so that they can work backwards and try to figure out when they've been abroad. So the frequent travelers um, who have not good, kept good records, that can be uh, um, a pitfall because if they might think they're closer to uh, meeting the residency requirement, uh, the 1,095 days than they actually are. 
So um, I guess that would be one thing. Also, any, um, you know, criminal matters that might come up. Sometimes what happens is we've helped the client with their permanent residence um, and we've kind of kept their, they've kept in touch. So we're pretty familiar with their files. So it makes it even easier for the citizenship piece. Um, but for the new clients, yeah, these are the kinds of things that, that, that are arise. Um, uh, also, yeah, people in the more, I guess, yeah, I, I guess these would be probably the main issues that I've seen. I don't know if others come to mind on your side. Well, I, I agree with you about the access to information. I mean, we always try to do that. Um, the The only time that I wouldn't uh, order those border records is if the client is 100% sure about their travel pattern, like they really, they're mm -hmm. assuring me that they know for sure. Yes. Even then, I might urge them to do it. Or if there's a particular urgency that we don't have time to wait, because the ATIPs are taking forever now, right? That's so if someone's eligible for citizenship, you know, they've done all this work mm -hmm. and they've spent all this time to become eligible. Yeah. And now you're telling them they're going to have to wait another three or four months for you to get an access to information request so you can check their dates. Mm -hmm. I mean, CPSA seems a bit faster. That's the only thing I would say for the access requests for, in my experience lately, but IRCC is super, super uh, delayed with their responses, but I'm still finding it's around 30, well, 30, 40, 50 days maybe for, but it's still a delay if you're already, you're ready to go, as you say, on the citizenship yeah. matter and they already have all of their dates. So maybe a helpful hint to listeners would be start that ATIP right away. Once the client retains you, get that ATIP going for that, that border report because none of us want to say ISIS report. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> none of us want to call the name. Um, but, um, and one of the things that we've done before when, you know, you press your client and you say, are you sure that this Excel spreadsheet is accurate? Mm -hmm. Well, and then they kind of start to waver. And you go, uh-oh. So we'll submit the application, but in the submission letter, we say this is to the best yes. of the my client's recollection, and we are now doing an access to information to obtain the actual report, and we'll submit it upon receipt. That's one of the things that we will do. Oh, and then we submit that later. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. way we can get them into the queue and then add that. That's my helpful hint number two. I'm very proud of myself right She's now. She's on a roll tonight. <laughs> I'm taking notes. That's two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad idea because what I found is that um, they're very suspicious of any error in the calculation of the of the residency days, right? So yes. I've had many clients that, you know, they applied on their own and then they came to me later and we realized that they missed, you know, just a couple of days. It doesn't make a difference. They're still eligible. Mm -hmm. But as soon as the citizenship officer sees that there's an error, automatically they think it's a misrep. Mm -hmm. even when all the evidence points to it being an innocent mistake. Mm -hmm. So I think leaving leaving a little bit of wiggle room there to say this is the best of our information, reserve yes. the right to change it if it, you know. Yeah, I like that wiggle room. That's that a good point. That's a really good point, actually, especially now that you don't even, the client does not even sign the um, citizenship calculation anymore. There used to be a place um, where they would sign now they don't sign anymore. So, um, yes, uh, also to protect ourselves, I guess council should, you know, um, include that, um, mention. Yeah. Uh, I think we typically would include, we, we would include, um, sometimes in our, in my rep letter, uh, a mention of that as well, but it's, it's a reminder that it's, uh, probably a really good idea since there's no longer a signature on the citizenship, uh, calculation page. 
Yeah, and of course, once they've done that, the days in and out, and you've got that correspondence filed, I think that's that's good to keep on record, just in case you know the pertinent, um, you know, regulatory body wants to inquire. But it, it's always it's always a good thing to keep records, detailed records, and of course, get that official border crossing. Now that they're doing entries and exits at the border, mm-hmm. right? It's going to be a lot more accurate. So it's definitely more helpful. One of the things I also try to look out for is multiple citizenships. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. so often, you know, they'll say, well, what passport, you know, passport number, and they go to the one they commonly use. And then they say any other passport or any other names. That's the other one. Mm -hmm. Nicknames, etc. Yeah, so true. um, And now they want a full copy, I think, of the whole passport, if I'm not mistaken. uh, Color. Passports in the five period. So I've always I've always sent them even oh. during the time when they said don't send it oh. I still sent it. That's smart actually. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, so they they have now updated the checklist to that effect. I guess another risk too is when the person is just a few days over the one thousand and ninety five days and they are ready and chomping at the bit they want to submit, but um they, you know they're probably the file is probably going to fall into um you know a group of files getting the residency questionnaire if they they. Uh, you know, might not want to wait a, a couple more weeks. So typically I would recommend a bit of a buffer before going for it. Actually, I wouldn't like if the person's just a couple of days over, um, I would recommend waiting uh, two or three weeks before at least, you know, to be sure. And, and they better be sure of the dates as well to be ensure that, you know, they are, they, they, they have kept good records and we're sure that they have uh, more than the, the requirement. Yeah, we, we always advise them to leave a little bit of a buffer um, of a couple of weeks, just in case, because it's easy to miscalculate. Like maybe they just drove down to Buffalo shopping and stayed one night and came back and like they would never remember that, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, as you know, like the Canada-US border historically has been pretty porous, right? So like there may or may not be a record of that. Yes. Um, and, you know, you can be off by a small amount and it makes the difference between qualifying or not. Yeah. Absolutely. And then changing the way they do the day count. How many times have they done that? <laughs> oh, gosh. Right? You, al- you arrive in Canada at 11.50 p.m. It counts as a day in Canada. But if you're departing that day, it's not. Is it? Yes? No? Who knows anymore? Mm-hmm. I-, I always like to double check that just because they've changed that. Uh, and then How much? Yeah. That, that day count for PR and then that day count for citizenship, make sure you're, you're always checking because you don't want to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. True. That's a good point as well. Because the definitions are always changing. And then the citizenship legislation, how many times did that change? Oh, God. Do you that, remember it's, it's that complicated. three or four year period? It was like, we're in, we're out, we're in. <laughs> the citizenship by descent uh, stuff is really complicated. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're going back to the old acts and uh, that's a whole other... Uh, field of citizenship law for sure i agree i agree i like to send it to someone who's a little bit more nuanced sometimes for those ones if i have to dig too deep i'm like i'm out (laughs) (laughs) canadians and yeah the 2009 amendments and um, there's a whole you know book about those uh proposed amendments and yeah, whoever drafted that legislation, honestly, I'd love to get my hands on them because it is so complicated. I'm like, you know, you really could have made this a lot easier to understand. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I can't even understand it. How do you expect the general public to understand it? Yeah, I know. Imagine, you know, if you're just uh, looking this up on the internet and you're trying to figure out if you're a Canadian or not. And yeah, it's uh, it's, uh, it's uh, definitely a more complex part of 
our practice. Have you, what are your observations about the, like the level of residency fraud in citizenship applications? Have you noticed any change in that over time? I could say that I don't, uh, I don't tend to get a, a window onto those applications because I, I haven't had it arise in cases I've been involved in. I haven't, I haven't been involved in, for example, litigating cases where there's been an alleged fraud um, made. Um, so I'm not sure if they're on the increase. I mean, I do know that I do get the sense that by rolling out this online portal, trying to cut out representatives, period, right? Encourage people to self-represent I think there is some concern from IRCC about unscrupulous, let's say, ghost consultants. Ironically, though, by reorienting the portal like this, I think it will encourage some ghosting of these applications. But I, I think that they have seen some, you know, uh, fraud, uh, and some of it tom- does come from unscrupulous actors that represent people, um, whether yeah. they're in Canada or out. But yeah, I mean, I like I I've seen a lot of this over the years. Mm. Um, I, I I don't know why, but I've just seen a lot of it. And my observation is that it's going down. Mm. And I don't know if it's because um, of a little bit greater exit control or a little bit more tracking of uh, entries as well, like you know, swiping PR cards more frequently mm-hmm. than they did before. Right. Or or like knowing what to ask for. Like I've noticed some applications they'll actually ask, like for example, if the person is from Turkey, uh, the citizenship officer knows that Turkey actually keeps these records. So they'll ask the person to provide border records from Turkey mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that if that's been discouraging the level of residency fraud, because I, it's gone down a lot, which is really nice to see. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think, I, you know, with the information sharing legislation that Canada implemented with tracking exits now, mm-hmm. I think that might have been, you know, technology can be really great, right? If you want your Canadian citizenship, there's a way to get it. You got to commit, you got to be here, you have to, you know, go through go through the hoops right if you're looking to be a PR you can still travel with your your Canadian citizen spouse a Canadian business there's there's a a bunch of reasons that you can still maintain your PR long term Mm -hmm. so you don't have to do citizenship Mm -hmm. but um, you know technology is getting smarter but sometimes the fraudsters are pretty good yeah I've seen some crazy stuff Hmm. it's uh, maybe word is getting out that you know that that there, there, you know, there are consequences, I guess, through a misrep uh, over the years. Um, you know, they, uh, I can't recall uh, how many years they've had clients sign, you know, the prohibition part of the form. Do you, do you recall, Chantal, you know, the one about? Yeah, no, I don't remember. So maybe that's a, some, for some people that would encourage them to tell the truth if they didn't know already that they should be truthful with the department. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can have your citizenship taken away if you're lying on that underlying a- immigration application and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. I have mm-hmm. seen that happen. I've yeah. seen that happen. And I think also, like, when they did the big crackdown a number of years ago, I think the word really got around. Like, that's that had a, a sobering effect on some people that, you know, there's actually people that they knew or people from their own community that had their citizenship revoked or mm-hmm. who, who got caught doing this and then you know that all of a sudden I think smartened people up quite a bit 
Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were certain countries on their list, I think we can say, and uh, they did a bit of a crackdown. And uh, since then, uh, um, you know, with cases with people having multiple passports and getting certain ones stamped and, and uh, to track. Others not. Yeah. So One of the things I also do is when I'm talking to my client, I, I go with my gut. And I find over time in this profession, you start to read your client. And that's where I like Zoom because I like to see my client's body language. As you're talking to them, like, okay, you did this. You were here in Canada. If they start <laughs> to get a little too, well, you know, and, and the words that they choose. Yep. And I always start honing in on that. And I, I always think to myself, go with your gut. Just go with your gut. Ask the questions. There's nothing wrong with asking questions respectfully of your client. And then eventually it kind of comes out. Well, I wasn't convicted. Well, were you charged? Well, yes. And now what's going on, right? And you have to to open sometimes that, that little bit of a wound for them. Or, well, I didn't do this because, and, and I hear this often, you know, my friends told me not to say that I had driven to the United States and flown out of the United States back home for X number of months because they just think I went to the United States and, you know, I, that I you know, they're not really tracking it. And I'm like, no, they're tracking it. They're good. It's, you know, the information and the data being shared, especially with facial recognition at, at the airports now. I know. And it's it's, it's starting to get very far reaching. So they can tell, was that actually you flying on that plane? And and I love it when people are saying, well, I don't want the government to have my, my face. I'm like, do you have a driver's license? Because if so, <laughs> they got your face. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a beautiful face. Yeah, biometrics is definitely uh, rampant, you know, in so many applications now. So, yeah. What, what, what do you perceive to be like the, the biggest issue that you're dealing with with citizenship lately? Is it like uh, delay or is it like refusals or? Well, I, I guess in terms of client issues, I was thinking my the bigger issue that I'm I'm facing is that I'm you know I I'm worried about this sort of self-representation type model that the IRCC is being is implementing because it oversimplifies things. Um, but in terms of in terms of my files, citizenship files, I would say that the delay is is the main uh, crux, right, or the main problem that we're seeing right now. That it's not like we're seeing uh, refusals or a lot of you know. Uh, you know, problem problems popping up in cases, but really just painful delays. People are ready to move on. Their PR cards are expired. They haven't maybe taken the time to renew the PR card during the pandemic because they figured, well, they weren't going to travel anyways. But now, you know, travel is starting to be on the horizon again. And, you know, how long it can take for a PR card renewal as well. So um, meanwhile, they keep thinking, well, my citizenship is going to come through any day. So um, you know, surely, surely, you know, we can just wait for that. But meanwhile, it might take longer. We can't really give them a fixed deadline when their citizenship application will be approved or finalized, let's say. So I think it's the uncertainties that are, are the and managing the client's expectation. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's where um, I, I always tell people like, you got to be so careful when you when you quote fees, 
because what looks to be straightforward all of a sudden is not anymore, right? And ha- have you protected yourself? Have you built in a buffer to make sure that, you know, you'd be fairly compensated for all the extra time and effort that you're going to put in? Because if you're not, then the temptation is, you know, well, let's pay attention to this other file and push this one to the side, right? That's mm-hmm. that's human nature. Mm-hmm. All those extra follow-ups that we have to do now that we didn't necessarily have to do as much of before COVID-19. Yeah, and it all takes time, right? Like, you know, even if you're just submitting a web form, you know, depending if it's working or not that day, that could be anywhere from like five minutes to 25 minutes. Absolutely. And, you know, submitting it and often resubmitting it because you'll get a boilerplate response and you're not sure if they receive the document sometimes or if they really are giving you an individualized response or, you know, so I agree. The, The other thing that strikes me is that whenever someone comes to me and like, particularly if I haven't handled their application from the beginning, um, they've come to you sort of midstream and they say, well, I've been waiting X amount of time. It's really hard to know if there's actually a real problem or if this is just an administrative bureaucratic delay, right? So again, like the access to information comes in. Mm -hmm. Like you got to order a copy of all the GCMS notes and all that to to try to figure out, like, is is there actually a complication here or, or not? And, and you want to see what the client submitted. So now you have to say to the client, what exactly did you submit? And that's one of the biggest problems with self-representation is then if they need to go to court at all, well, what exactly did you submit? Well, I don't remember because... Yeah, most people don't know. They, they don't know. So, yeah. and of course, we can't, you can't submit anything new. And if you even think about it or try, oy, <laughs> right? So I think it, with respect to your point about you know, counsel kind of being cut out of the new portal process, I think it's a lot more damaging than they really think about. Yeah. I mean, just imagine that so many people would apply on their own and not necessarily take a screenshot of every page or keep a sleeve with their documents that they transmit. Just that alone will put you in the dark if ever there's a problem and you're trying to, you know, address it rapidly. Yeah. And then the fee receipt, you got to upload the fee receipt. Well, you got to create a login for that portal mm-hmm. to get get the fee receipt, That's a download the fee receipt. It's actually three <laughs> portals, right? In a way, a three online processes, because you need, if you go through the online citizenship process, the new portal, their e-citizenship portal, well, there's that. Then you've got to create an account if you're uh, to, you know, in order to track your absences, a citizenship calculator. And then you would need an account, as you say, to pay your fee that, that you need to uh, be able to successfully submit a complete application online. So um, even if the self-represented represented individual manages to do all those three, um, then they also have to get past all those trick questions and answer everything you know accurately. Um, it's a big hurdle. And some are able, no, but some... Are- yeah, have no no gaps in the address, make sure you've answered all yeah. the questions properly. Mm-hmm. So for funny enough, my, my experience having done the Zoom, you know, self-represented kind of thing was it took us probably three or four times as long to put that application together so that person could represent themselves. So now our the next time we do it, our fee is going to go up. You right. want to self-represent, that's fine. But if you want us to sort of walk you through this entire process, then 
it, it's a lot. Yes. It's a lot. So our, our legal fees are going up. And I don't think that's what IRCC intended. No, they wanted to but be that's, cheaper, if anything. But yeah, that's what also because you're almost training the client. You have to teach them yeah. like you would, you know, a legal assistant or a law clerk. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and they're going to do this once in their life and you've done it a million times, right? So you've got economy of scale as well that, you know, like you, if you were left on your own to just do it yourself, you could do it really fast because you've done it a million times. But if you have to walk somebody through it who's never done it and will only do it once ever, that's obviously going to take a huge amount of more time. Yeah. And, and I mean, for my clients, one of the things that we have found is that the compilation of that self-representative, you know, portal, it's like, oh, putting everything together and making sure it's on their, their side of the fence. So now it's easier if you sit beside your client, physically sit beside your client. That's the easiest way. Uh-huh. Well, it's also COVID. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thanks. Just contemplating this. Yes. <laughs> Game over. So, you know, now you're putting people at risk to make sure that 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 person has done it properly and you can you know either airdrop or something the documents they need to upload quickly because they forgot to compress it or they don't have adobe pro to you know reduce the size of that document or they forgot the the fee receipt so you quickly go jump on their computer and you know log in all your stuff and get the fee receipt in two minutes so that way they've got it there right but um so for what I see, and I, again, we've only done one self-represented, but we've started a few others. The problem it now becomes the cost has gone up. The time to put this application together is increased. There's a lot more room for errors. And because of that, is it really an access to justice problem? When when clients are saying, well, I can't afford it. I'd rather do a paper application. And then IRCC gets paper, and of course they're saying, "Well, we don't want to have people in the office because of COVID." So now it's going to take us a long time, you know, yeah. like two or three hours to scan this, all these documents to upload it into the GCMS. Absolutely, and you know what? Like at bare minimum, what we said is if they could at least remove the restriction on prohibiting clients from sharing their password with their lawyer. Uh, so that both parties could at least access, it would be such a, a, a major help because then at least, you know, we would be able to get in there and, and work on, you know, and the client would, could, could still go in and, and sign, sign off. Like that would be ideal, but we could go in and at least, you know, uh, make updates and then get the client's approval and uh, sign off and submission. But because of privacy reasons and for whatever else, they're, they're, they're not willing to um, allow that. So without expanding their minimum viable product um, to include counsel, and who knows when exactly that will transpire in, in the new year. Um, we're sort of uh, stuck in this in-between. And so it, it, we're faced with these dilemmas, like you say, Catherine. What, what, what do you think is going to change and what do you think is going to stay the same out of all this, like a year or two from now? Oh, it's hard to say. I guess they probably will iron out some of the little technical bugs and glitches and maybe further automate it so that you can make your payment right online and you can do your citizenship residency questionnaire right online or the client can. Um, I I do think that there will be continued advocacy and eventually they will upgrade the role of counsel, um, but I don't know how long it'll take. I, I would like to hope it would be, you know, within a matter of a few months uh, maximum, but 
uh, maybe it'll be a year. Um, there might even be litigation on this matter. I, I uh, you know, I'm, I'm just speculating here, but. When's the next federal election? Perhaps just about six months before then, they might get a little more motivated to make us more citizens. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, there can be uh, like with Afghanistan, right commitments. And then after the election, it's hard to deliver on them ambitious targets. So sometimes that's what can happen. But uh you never know. Good intentions. Good, Good intentions. intentions. Yeah. <laughs> and truly, like, I do think that is the laudable piece of this. I do think that really they truly want to, you know, make it easier and, and stream a little more streamlined and faster. And given that they know that how, how difficult it is with the processing centers, not digitizing as fast as they'd like, uh, the e-citizenship portal is a way uh, to move forward. And, uh, and it is. It's just that it's been launched prematurely, in my opinion. Hmm. I always say if you if you want to make sure that something gets screwed up really well, give it to the government to take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let, let's do this in-house. Yeah, how about no? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even the ones that they've outsourced like to, to other, uh, like, uh, you know, other providers, private providers, um, like Iron Mountain and whatnot. Uh, I think the TR to PR, if I'm not mistaken, they're all sort of blending together. But I think that one was done privately uh, out of house, if you will, they engaged um, private uh, provider, private provider to do the portal. It seems like still, you know, the minimal viable product did not include uh, council. So, hmm. yeah, and I think it would be good for them to make it like the PR portal, where you know, representatives go in, upload everything, get it all ready, and then you press your 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 side of the fence. Yeah. The client goes in, takes a look at it, mm -hmm. and presses the button on their side of the fence. Then yes. representative goes back in and submits it, and off yeah. you go. And it would allow us to download a copy of all the documents listed that yes. were uploaded. So then you know for a fact the exact name of the document. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. It it there's room for improvement for sure. Yeah, and, now, like I know I can buy a four million dollar house using DocuSign, and you're telling me they can't figure out a workaround? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think digital signatures are still on the table for discussion, so it's uh, <laughs> different like if, digital signatures for different applications. So if I had four million dollars, which I don't, <laughs> if I had four million dollars, I'd buy me some citizenship. <laughs> All right. Well, Lisa, we're out of time for tonight. Um, we really appreciate your time and your expertise. You've had some really great ideas and commentary. Oh, thanks um, so much. I've learned so much as well on my side, just sharing stories. We love to share stories. Thank you so much for your insights, Lisa. Thank you. Have a great night. Bonne soirée. Bye-bye. Are you an immigration practitioner working on cases involving temporary residency and work permit applications? Hmm? Stay prepared with Iman Publishing's Temporary Entry into the Canadian Labour Market by Stephen Green, Alexandra Cole, Christina Guida, and Peter Salerno. This handbook will guide you through the avenues and implication of a foreign worker's temporary entry into Canada from applications for work authorizations all the way through to employer compliance and inspections. Get your copy today. Visit emon.ca forward slash T-E-C-L-M and enter promo code TECLM10 for 10% off. Do it now. On today's segment of Things I Wish I Knew, 
One thing that took me a very long time to develop, and I wish that I had known this information earlier in my career, is that part of our value add as advocates in the immigration process sometimes involves really challenging our clients on the things that they tell us and the evidence that they present to us. I used to think when I was younger and more junior that it was somehow disrespectful or insulting to the client to suggest to them that maybe there was something wrong with their documents or certain piece of, pieces of their story were not adding up. But over time, I realized that that's where we can really um, add a lot to the file by challenging the client and saying, look, you know, if, if I'm having doubts about this, wait until you get in front of the refugee board and they're examining you. And, you know, I'm on your side and I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, I need to tell you if something is not adding up here. I often will say when the officer looks at this, they're going to see these gaps or this isn't explained and they don't really know, you know, how to that this is a link or connection right here. So we need to fill in that blank. What's the blank client? And I think I agree with you. We need to get what we need to advance the client's case to make sure it's really solid and all of those leaps and context are filled in. Yeah, that, that's a good approach. I mean, you don't have to come at it from the perspective of, I don't believe you or I have doubts about you. You can come at it from the perspective of, look, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt here, but a decision maker is going to look at it like this. They're going to be a lot more critical. So if we want to pass the legal test, then we're going to have to bring evidence or bring explanations to cover off these points. So that's why I need to hear from you. And I find that whenever I've done that, the client has had a lot more respect for me. They didn't get offended. They didn't get upset. They could see that I was trying to help them. And they could also see that they couldn't just pull the wool over my eyes as well. What doesn't break you makes you stronger, makes your case so better. Wow. Wow. Should I stick to my day job? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Things I wish I knew. We would like to thank our very special guest, Lisa Middlemiss, for sharing her time and expertise with us today to discuss the citizenship process during COVID, as well as its pitfalls and various helpful hints. We really appreciate your time, Lisa. Thank you so much. The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Danan Haas, and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit emond.ca forward slash welcome home immigration and enter code welcome home at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at welcomehome at emond.ca or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925 extension 227. My name is Danan Hawes, and I'm the senior publisher at Iman Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home podcast. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content, including our immigration law series edited by Chantelle Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, 3rd Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home podcast, as well as our EMOND exam prep ICCRC practice exams and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. 
Imond is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's Immigration and Citizenship Law Program for Immigration Consultants.